0: Camera Girl here. I'm Inyan Fogarty, and you can think of me as your friendly guide to the English language. We talk about writing, history, rules, and other cool stuff. Today, we're going to talk about why the word tiny actually sounds smaller than the word huge, how to properly use the word of, the preposition of, and cocapelli. What sized object comes to mind when you hear a made-up word like TD? Something small or something large? And does booba sound round or spiky? Fascinatingly, research has found that even across languages, people often assign very similar meanings to certain types of words because of the way they sound. This idea of words sounding like their meaning is something most people become acquainted with early in life when adults ask children what says moo and what says woof. These words for the noises that animals make are derived from how people perceive the way the noises sound and then try to copy them in speech. Of course, depending on our language system, we hear these animal noises differently, which is why dogs might say woof in English but wan-wan in Japanese. Such onomatopoeia or words that mimic something about the things they describe is just the tip of the iceberg in modern sound symbolism research, a field which studies the non arbitrary relationship of sounds to meaning. Though the idea of words having an inherent sense had been tossed around by philosophers in antiquity who pondered the nature of meaning, a more scientific look at this topic began in the early twentieth century focusing specifically on the sounds a word contained rather than the word itself. Since then, there's been a steady stream of work that's pointed to a link between certain sounds and a person's perception of the properties of objects like their size or shape. For instance, in an early experimental study by the famed anthropological linguist Edward Sapir, made-up words were used to refer to a table— when told the table was mall, subjects identified the table as large, as opposed to when the table was referred to as mill, which they associated instead with a small table. What was behind this strange pattern? Sapir hypothesized that words with vowels pronounced using the front part of the tongue, like E, were associated with smaller-sized objects than words with vowels like O and a, ah, made more toward the back of the mouth. Since his early work, this vowel-size correlation has been replicated extensively, and moving beyond just size, later studies have tried to tease out both which sounds seem to trigger specific associations and what they seem to symbolize. For instance, similar experiments have also examined the relationship between certain vowels like O and E and an object's shape. When asked to match made-up names to objects, people seem to prefer words with OO or O vowels for round objects, selecting maluma or booba. In contrast, sharp or angular objects get matched up with names that have E and A sounds such as kiki or takete. So front vowels seem to indicate spikiness or angularity, while back vowels are heard as describing smooth or round objects. Finally, not only do sounds appear to tell us something about size or shape, but they also seem to influence listeners' emotions. In studies of how different vowel sounds affect emotional states, front vowels like E or A are happier sounding. Think of glee or peace. than back vowels like those in gross or tomb. For example, in a recent study, German subjects reported lower mood and pleasantness ratings after saying oo vowels. As well, in looking across song lyrics, poems, and other types of texts, other researchers suggest e-vowels occur in texts with a more pleasant emotional tone. Further, research in linguistics and psychology explores whether such sound symbolism holds even if we hear words in a language we don't understand. So for instance, when an English speaker listens to Chinese, are they still more accurate in guessing a word's meaning based on the sounds used? The short answer is yes. The sounds people often perceive as indicating small versus big or round versus angular shapes tend to be alike across languages. In other words, this sound size and sound shape link wasn't related to any specific language, but seemed to be something more universal. In studies with participants who spoke varied languages like English or Japanese, a made-up word with front vowels like E was consistently taken to describe a smaller object than a word with back vowels like U, regardless of the language background of the listener. And not only do made-up words exhibit these size and shape-predicting vowel patterns, existing vocabularies and languages seem to reflect the trend— In cross-linguistics research, it was found that 90% of languages use E sounds in words to indicate some type of smallness. Think, for example, of how English refers to kids using nicknames with E sounds added to the end, such as Sammy, Freddie, Janie, or Susie, but how people often stop using those diminutives when they grow up and become, well, bigger people… It also seems that these sound-meaning relationships can even help decipher what words mean in an unknown language. When speakers of Polish or Italian, for instance, were given words in linguistically unrelated languages like Japanese and Finnish, they were still able to guess the correct meaning of the words given several choices at rates better than chance using only the sounds of the words as clues. Though it does now seem well-established that sounds alone can communicate some aspect of meaning, what might explain why certain sounds communicate particular things like how big or spiky objects are or how happy we are, and why would this be so prevalent across languages? In the late 20th century, linguist John O'Halla proposed the Frequency Code Hypothesis drawing on an earlier theory by Darwin that posited that speech emerged from the imitation of sounds in the natural world. O'Holland noted the fact that, in the wild, large animals tend to make lower-frequency sounds compared to smaller animals. For example, when a lion roars at a mouse, you generally find the mouse listens. This relationship of pitch to the perception of size emerges because a sound's frequency is determined in large part by the size of the vocal tract that produces it. Larger animals generally have larger vocal tracts that produce deeper resonances, much like the larger cello produces a deeper sound than a violin. Drawing on this relationship between loud and large, Ohala suggests that vowels articulated in the back of the mouth and with a more open vocal tract like oo and ah have a lower frequency so remind us of larger objects, while vowels that have a more front and closed articulation like e and teensy and tiny make us think of smaller and more compact objects. Well, we don't utter deep growls at people, at least not after our first cup of coffee, adopting articulary positioning to create lower or higher-pitched sounds translates to what was once a biologically relevant clue—big animal or small animal—into a similar sense of largeness or smallness associated with that sound another popular theory suggests that our sound meaning associations stem instead from the phonetic gestures we make when producing sounds front vowels those e and a sounds involve smaller movements with a closed jaw position while back vowels o and a sounds involve a more open jaw position resulting in a larger mouth opening likewise making an o or oo sound involves lip rounding something that might explain why we hear those sounds as rounder or curvier than E sounds which instead involve spread lips. In both cases, speakers learn to associate these embodied senses of a smaller closed mouth or larger open mouth or sharper or rounder lip positions with the sounds they produce. Regardless of which theory you ascribe to, much of what contributes to our ability to hear sounds in isolation as is meaningful does seem to come from the experiences we have tied into speaking those sounds, be it the shape of our mouths resembling round objects as when we say oo or o, oh, or the lower pitch due to body size of the sound ah compared to e. Of course, these sound-meaning correspondences are more on the order of statistical tendencies than obligatory links because languages have widely divergent pressures on their sound systems over time. For instance, the Great Vowel Shift radically altered the way vowels were pronounced in English at the end of the Middle English period for reasons that had nothing to do with whether we were describing spiky things or small things. But even so, it certainly ramps up the pressure when trying to find that perfect-sounding name for a new baby or pet. That segment was written by Valerie Fridland, a professor of linguistics at the University of Nevada in Reno and the author of a forthcoming book on all the speech habits we love to hate. She's also a language expert for Psychology Today, where she writes a monthly blog, Language in the Wild. You can find her at ValerieFridland.com or on Twitter as FridlandValerie. Next, we'll talk about nixing the horrid of. Almost everyone has a few bad writing habits. They're often the kind of thing experts or even your friends can point to and say, yep, I know who wrote that. She always writes things that way. One of my bad habits is that I tend to overuse the word of. A while ago, I was working on a document, and as I read back through it, I noticed there must have been 20 instances of the word of. Ugh. Of is a preposition, and although it's not an inherently evil word, overusing it can make your writing sound passive and fussy. Here's an example of a bad sentence. She is the wife of George. (laughs) That is just horrible. It makes me cringe just to say it. It makes me think of Margaret Atwood's The Handmaid's Tale, in which the handmaids have names like Offred, O-F, followed by the name, like Fred, to indicate that they belonged to Fred. But I digress. Here's a better way to say the same thing. She is George's wife. See, you don't need the of. That second sentence sounds much more straightforward without it. She's George's wife. I'm hopeful that none of you would actually write she's the wife of George or any other such strained sentence, but more subtle, unnecessary ofs can slip into your writing if you aren't careful. Here's a more reasonable example. Reporting on some bizarre science experiment, you might write the length of the remaining string can be used to calculate how far the snail has moved. There's nothing really wrong with that sentence, except it leaves you wondering how to attach string to a snail. Nevertheless, you could tighten up the sentence by rewriting it to say, the remaining string length can be used to calculate how far the snail has moved. See, compare the length of the remaining string with the remaining string length, The second version, without the of, sounds more direct, at least to me. And here's a final example of how the word of can be a sign that your writing is bloated and can be more direct. First, the bad sentence. You can tell that the readers are passionate about flocked Christmas trees by the criticism of tiny details of tree pictures online. You can get rid of that of in the part about the criticism of tiny details and make it better. You can tell that the readers are passionate about flocked Christmas trees by the way they criticize the tiny details of tree pictures online. The first sentence isn't wrong, but can you hear how the second sentence sounds more active and direct? But remember, I said of isn't always wrong or bad. There are good ways to use the word of, too. In that last sentence, there isn't really a way to get rid of the of in the phrase, the tiny details of tree pictures. You could use a different preposition, like the tiny details in tree pictures, but it's essentially the same. Another example is, please bring me a bucket of water. You have to write it that way to show that you want a bucket that actually has water in it. If you tried to rewrite it the way I did the length of string example, you'd end up with please bring me a water bucket, which has a different meaning people would think you were asking for a bucket that's meant to hold water but is currently empty, so you need the of. You may remember that in a previous episode, I talked about using of to show possession, and of is especially useful when you're dealing with double possessives. For example, if you want to talk about a photo that you own, you probably shouldn't say, that's my photo, because people might think it's a photo of you instead of a photo that belongs to you. You could say, the photo belongs to me, but you could also use an of and say, that's a photo of mine. The of indicates possession, as does the word mine, which is what makes it a double possessive. I also find of to be useful when I'm dealing with a complex trail of possession. I find it easier to follow something like, he's the cousin of my neighbor's brother, than he's my neighbor's brother's cousin. Finally, there's at least one idiom where you need an of. You need it in the phrase a couple of. You have a couple of marimbas, a couple of friends, and a couple of feather boas. In most similar phrases, the of is considered unnecessary and you can leave it out. You jump off the pier, not off of the pier, for example. But a couple of is a special case. So although of can be useful, it can also clutter up your writing. If using it the wrong way is one of your bad habits, as it is mine, you might want to use the find feature of your word processor to search for the word of after you've finished your first draft to look for sentences that could stand some rewriting.
1: Finally, I have a family act story. I started listening to the podcast, I don't know, maybe in the last, uh, seems like it had been a year, but time goes faster, so it may have been close to a year or a little less barely made it through. Well, I did, did fine going through school, but didn't have to try hard. So I didn't try hard, hated it with a passion. And then, uh, once I got out of school later, um, became a Christian, went into the ministry. Um, and now several years ago, um, not, not only did my heart change, but my, my brain changed too. I enjoyed learning and reading and studying. So, uh, started back, uh, taking, uh, graduate classes for a master's degree. Um, and I'm about halfway finished through that, um, Started using the Grammarly tool online, and then listening to your podcast and a few others about words and their history and how to use them and things like that. So uh, wish I'd paid attention in school twenty years ago, but didn't. uh, But I'm enjoy uh, learning now. Um, You just you just played the the thing where the lady was talking about uh, her mom and dad and the word he would use because he couldn't say jerk and stuff, and I forget now. But she said it's a word that only is used within a family. And the one that we've come up with is a word called a copalami. I'm not really sure how I came up with it. The only thing in the back of my mind I'm wondering is if it had something to do with when I was in middle school and high school band. There was a thing called a cocapelli or something like that. That was this little character that had to do with uh, music and I think maybe African culture, maybe in, in history. Um, but somehow it turned into a little ditty that I, I sing to my son. Um, and it says, Little Copalami walking with me, little Copalami, can't you see? Copalami jump, Copalami run. I never thought I'd have a Copalami son. And it just turned into his nickname where I, I call him my little Copalami or Copalami, what you doing? Uh, so hope that's interesting to you. Not sure what the history of that word is. I hope it doesn't mean anything bad and I don't realize it. Um, I'm sure there's a story in. How that could happen as well. Uh, But that's one I don't know if you've ever heard of before Copalami. All right, take care. Bye bye.
0: Thanks for the call. I know what you mean about getting into learning as you get older. I hated history in school. It just felt like memorizing dates, and now I absolutely love history podcasts. And thanks for sharing your Copalami story. It's nothing bad. That little character you're thinking of, Cocopelli, which you're right, has to do with music. He's carrying a flute. He is a deity from Native American cultures in the Southwest going back thousands of years. His pictures appear in ancient rock carvings, and there are many, many stories. He's known as a fertility god, a trickster god, a storyteller, and as a representative of the spirit of music. Some stories say he chases away winter and brings spring, and he's always depicted hunched over, and sometimes looks like he has a pack on his back, which some stories say contains seeds for the fields or babies to deliver, and he plays his flute to announce his arrival. If you want to call with a story of your familect, a word your family and only your family uses, you can leave a voicemail at 83 girl and I might play it on the show. I'm Mignon Fogarty, better known as Grammar Girl. You can find articles that go with each podcast segment at my website, quickanddirtytips.com. Thanks to my editor, Adam Cecil, and my audio engineer, Nathan Sims, who's escaped winter in the United States and is enjoying summer in Brazil for the next month and a half. Our assistant manager is Emily Miller, and our marketing and publicity assistant is Davina Tomlin. That's all. Thanks for listening.
1: Who doesn't love a classic chocolate chip cookie? Famous Amos has been making them since the 70s. 1975 to be exact, with semi-sweet chocolate chips and a satisfying crunch. It's everything classic in one bite-sized cookie. And fans couldn't get enough. That's right. You'll find our original recipe, the one you know and love, in every bag of Famous Amos original chocolate chip cookies. Find Famous Amos anywhere you buy your favorite snacks. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential.